Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, just one more uh, save the date, not really an announcement, but save the date. Um, every year we, do a, we take a Sunday morning where we don't worship the way we do typical Sundays where we meet in here and do this, uh, but we meet in here just for a few minutes and we'll pray and have kind of a short like kind of devotional, uh, we'll take communion, and then we spend the day out serving our community. So we call it Four Other Sundays. Uh, like Nathan said, we're a church of disciple-making disciples. And so uh, what that means is we, we do that by kind of living out three values. Uh, we, we do that by being with Jesus, being in God's Word, and being for others. And so what we do is on November 5th, uh, we will not have standard service right here. We will be over. We, we partner with Oakley Elementary School right across the street where we just go over there and help them with all of the kind of, you know, landscaping, you know, maintenance projects that their staff is, is over, you know, just so overwhelmed and, and under-resourced to do. And so here's my pastoral guilt trip for the day. I think it's the only one. Uh, we're going to ask you to register for that just so as Amy is planning and setting up for that, you know, we know kind of different projects, different things to do. And if the numbers for showing up to serve our community are significantly lower than showing up and sitting down in here and worshiping together, it's going to be a real bummer, okay? Because it's part of who we are, right? People who follow Jesus, uh, we do that for the good of those around us and for the glory of God. So, so let me encourage you if you're like, hey, we're not having church today because we're not sitting down in here and listening to a sermon. That's not true. We are going outside to be the church to the community around us. And the reason we do that, okay, this, this is kind of turning into an announcement, so sorry. But I've got the mic and you're already sitting down, so we'll get into it. Uh, for most of us, Paul talks about the message of the gospel, right, which we're going to talk about today. He talks about it being foolishness to people who don't know Jesus. And so what going out and serving the community asking for nothing in return does is that it builds a plausibility structure for the community to understand why we believe what we believe. It makes it a little bit easier for someone who's never had an, uh, an encounter with Jesus Christ to be able to say, wow, maybe there really is something to what they believe. And so if you've been looking for a way that's tangible and practical to share your faith with the community around us, super easy. Just on November 5th, show up and be prepared to rake leaves, to... to we're going to be doing some work on the playground. We'll probably be maybe painting some stuff. So just show up in like your Saturday workday clothes that you would normally wear to do job, you know, jobs around the house and, and projects around the house and just show up and, and get ready to serve. Is that all right? So November 5th, go ahead and put it in your calendar, uh, put it in your phone, and we'll do that. So all right, let me jump into the message today. Let me pray for us, and then, and then we'll get into Colossians chapter 2. Jesus, thanks for how much you love us, and thank you that, that as we gather here together, um, that we are reminded as we hear each other sing, as we fellowship together, as we pray and come before you, we remember who you are and what you've done for us. And we remember what you said 2,000 years ago while you walked on earth, that you said where two or more are gathered in your name, that you were there with them. So Jesus, thank you for that promise. And we hold you to that promise today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. In the early 1900s, um, it became possible, and really late 1800s, but early 1900s, the idea of being able to put like a lot of people on a boat and travel across an entire ocean became realistic. So in the early 1900s, the, the British government started constructing in Liverpool, uh, which is a large kind of port city in the western coast of, 
of the British Isles, uh, began constructing a, a massive passenger ship. In, in the, uh, but we know, if you're, if you're you know, keen on, on world history, uh, that around that same time, uh, there became a lot of unrest between different countries in Europe, and, and, and things started building kind of geopolitically towards the First World War. So late in the summer of 1914, German submarines, otherwise known as U-boats, started to patrol the coastline of the British Isles just kind of encircling and covering all the space of, what, of, of where a boat could go to get in to the, to the British Isles to port there. And in February of, of 1915, they declared the waters, the German government declared the waters around the British Isles a war zone, saying that any British ship or a ship flying an allied flag of Britain would be searched and potentially engaged in combat. So while that all was going on, that large passenger ship was being built. It was called the RMS Lusitania, and it was nearly finished being constructed. And so a few months after Germany declared the waters around the British Isles a war zone, in April of 1915, the ship was loaded up with a handful of German Americans and hoped that it wouldn't be attacked and set sail for New York City, where it landed a few months later. And the plan was that a, a few weeks after that, at the beginning of May, they would load up 1,900 passengers and make a journey back to Liverpool, meaning they would have to travel through the war zone to get there. The week before the ship set sail, the German embassy ran a warning statement in over 50 newspapers for a week including the New York Times, which, of course, the, the boat was leaving New York City. And it was reminding everybody, very kind of them, that any British ship or ship flying an Allied flag that entered the war zone, whether it was a, a, a combat ship or otherwise, would be searched, potentially engaged in combat, and liable to be destroyed. So despite the warnings, the ship set sail anyways on May 1st in 1915. The days following, it was about a five or six day journey across the Atlantic Ocean to reach the, the British Isles. And as each day went on, there was an increase of German submarines patrolling the waters around the British Isles that the boat would have to go through. The closer they got the passenger ship to the British Isles, the German submarines started sending warning shots onto carrier boats and, and, and other Allied and, and British submarines. As they approached the war zone, they got closer and closer. The British government issued warnings and advisories to leave the course they were on and try to land somewhere in mainland Europe in fear that they would be taken down. But despite, at this point, two weeks of warnings by the German embassy, by the German submarines, by their own government, the captain continued his course. And on May 7th, 1915, the RMS Lusitania was taken down by German submarines. Of the, of the 1,900 passengers, nearly 1,200 died, including Alfred Vanderbilt, a member of the Vanderbilt family who had just left his uncle's summer home in Asheville to do trip in New York City, traveling to Liverpool, was last seen strapping a life vest onto a woman holding a baby. 
Now, I'm not here to say that it's the captain's fault for horrific war crimes or needless mass murder of nearly 1,200 humans, but I couldn't help but wonder how different the story would have gone if he had heeded the warnings. When alarms went off as people gave advice and tried to tell him what was going to happen, how differently would 1,200 lives be if those warnings were taken seriously? So the passage that we just read a little while ago, what Paul is doing is he's sounding an alarm for us. He's giving us a warning call. And really much of the letter to the Colossians is, just by way of reminder, this letter was written to a young church in the ancient Roman Empire uh, in a small city of Colossae where, where there had been false teaching coming in that were leading people away from the basic doctrines that kept Jesus as supreme and were trying to bring him down to an equal playing field in their faith. And so while, while some of these teachings can seem like really disconnected and philosophical from the world that we live in 2,000 years later across languages and cultures and continents, what I hope to do is to show us two warnings that are trying to, to bring us back into what Paul calls captivity. And what I want us to do is remind us that we have freedom in Christ. Because that's what the truth is. The truth is that Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that Jesus has set us free. He set us free from sin. He set us free from spiritual darkness. What Paul calls in Ephesians the domain of darkness. He has set us free from our shame. He has set us free from addictions. He's made it possible for us to live in freedom. And Paul is warning a sounding, he's sounding a warning for us about two, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say enslavers or, or, or um, two enslavers that are built on lies and then he combats them with truth. And the reason I'm saying enslavers is because like he said, look at the beginning of verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes us captive. What, 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 the, what these lies try to do is to take us away from the throne of Jesus, a, a, a rule and a reign that actually offers freedom and a chance of being made whole and take us captive. And so just as we get into this, it's a good reminder that, that as Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, that, that the only person responsible for your discipleship is you. Okay, The only person responsible for my discipleship following Jesus is me. Now I understand that's a little ironic that I'm standing here and that every, every week we carve out a bit of time for us to come sit down, open our Bibles, and hear someone teach to you. But the reality is, is that whether my sermon's good or not, most of us won't remember it by tomorrow. If you do, maybe you'll remember it by Wednesday. And, and you may remember like a few catchy points or illustrations, but you probably won't remember the majority of the sermon. And while this is an important part of following Jesus and being the family of faith here on earth, the reality is that I'm not responsible for you following Jesus or even how you follow Jesus. Right? The job of a pastor is a lot like my favorite Peloton instructor where he says, I make suggestions and you make decisions. I can stand up here and beg you guys, and even through the week preparing for today to live an integrated life, beg myself to do the right stuff to follow Jesus. But whether you do it or not, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to. I see you guys maybe two hours a month for the most part. 
You are responsible for your own discipleship. From the media you take in to the newsletters we start our day with when we open our email, we allow ourselves to be formed by the way we think and process the world around us and the truth that we decide to live by. It's our job, it's your own job to be the gatekeeper to the information you've taken in because the reality is the church in America's problem is not an information problem, it's a discipleship problem. We have an endless supply of content, but content does not make us more like Jesus. So what, we're, what I want to do is, is maybe even just get you aware of these lies that Paul's warning about so that as you live your life and as, you, and as we go through this, this life following Jesus, that, that we can focus on the lie and then combat those with the truth that Jesus gives us. But here's the first thing that we need to do is that we need to be aware of the legacies that we've been given in our faith. Here's what I mean by legacies that we've been given. That, is that we've all kind of adopted both negative and positive legacies that have been handed down to us in the way we live. From the families that we grew up in to, to the you know, favorite comedian that we've listened to, to the podcast that we choose to listen to, to our favorite you know, people we follow on TikTok or Instagram or something like that. We have received legacies that have been passed down on how we process faith and truth. Right? Remember anybody here last week and remember how Fred opened with a little thought experiment? Does anybody remember that? Where he said words and we were supposed to give immediately the first word that came to our mind. What was interesting was that in all of those, like someone said a response and, and it was kind of quiet or maybe a giggle, but then he said Christianity and someone honestly, thank you for saying it, whoever it was said rules, and there was like a general like hum of agreement in the room. So even, even that association of Christianity and rules, I would, I would say, I would suggest comes from receiving, you've received that, we've received that as a legacy of the household we grew up in, the church we attended, the, the kind of theological framework that we were given and handed down from us, right? Because those verses last week says, just as you received Christ, and it says that, that just as you were taught. So the reality is some of the lies that we, that we have to be aware of are just negative legacies that we've been handed down in our faith that want to bring us back into spiritual captivity. But Jesus has set us free. And the reason I bring up the, those kind of legacies that's been passed down to you from the faith is that he starts out in, in verse 8 and he says, See to that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Which are, which are built on or depend on two things, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, okay? So, so just that human traditions we don't like a lot of us, especially if you're my generation. The second one, the elemental forces of this world. Who, whose translation says something different than the elemental? Anybody have like the elemental principles of this world? Who's got a different translation? Basic. Basic? Okay, great. Basic. Basic principles, is that what a lot of people have? Elementary, Elementary yeah, yep. Okay, so we're going to get into that in a minute because hearing it, the NIV says the elemental forces of, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, and that makes a lot of us feel really uncomfortable. We'll get into that in a minute. But those two things, those two things are, are like the baseline. They're what the, the enslavers that are trying to get us to leave 
and move our eyes off of the reality of who Jesus is and draw us back into their power under their rule. Because if they can get us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to step away from the throne where we submit every area of our life to him, then they can get us to believe their lies. And the two, the two things, human traditions and those elementary, you know, elementary principles, those basic principles, those you know, elementary spiritual forces, they play two different roles because what human traditions do is they make us in charge, right? Like, like a lot of times tradition we like because it lets us be in charge. Anybody have a favorite holiday tradition that works really well for you? Like you're the one who gets to open the first Christmas present? You know? What about like who gets to eat first at the Thanksgiving meal, right? That tradition works really well for the person who made the tradition, Right? Right? Like, like the tradition is, you're going to come to my house for dinner, and if you don't, I'm going to freak out and kind of ruin holidays for the rest of us. That might hit a little close to home. You're welcome. Thanksgiving's only a few weeks away, y'all. All right, start, go ahead and strategizing how you're going to talk to your parents about it. But, but that's what human traditions do. Human traditions make us in charge. And then the elemental forces, however you want to, you know, however it's phrased in your translation, what it does is that it makes other authorities in our lives in charge. And, and so there are kind of three ways to think through that kind of elemental uh, spiritual forces or basic principles or whatever. It, one, it could mean, uh, the, the Greek that's used there is used in other parts of the Bible uh, to mean just like literal elements of the earth, right? So there's four basic elements, you know, water, fire, uh, wind, earth. Okay, so it could mean that. The second thing it could mean is that uh, it's, it, it kind of goes a step beyond that, kind of like elemental forces of the world, but, but where there's been some kind of like um, spiritual entity or reality that's been attached to it. So that's where you get a lot of the uh, like worship of, of the sun god, of you know, the water god, things like that. And, and, and in the context, I actually think that's probably what Paul's talking about, as we'll get into a little later, that, that as Roman culture the church was old enough for kind of that Roman, polytheistic, pagan nature worship to kind of infiltrate the church, that they, that they were becoming interlocked in places they shouldn't. Um, or the third thing it can mean is like just kind of basic doctrines and, and teachings, uh, you know, specifically about Judaism, which we'll kind of look. But I think that, that the second or third are, are the closest thing to being right, probably the first one, or the, the second one, which is like, the reality of, of real earthly physical things, but with a, with a spiritual entity or agency attached to it, which makes us real uncomfortable because we only like to believe in Western culture, products of the Enlightenment, that things are only real if you can see it, you know, if you can study it, if there's science to back it up. But, but the biblical worldview, the biblical authors took for granted that there was this other realm that existed kind of alongside of us where there's spiritual beings waging war for the earth, okay? So I know that's odd, but, but I think that that's what Paul's talking about here. And so when we allow these things to deceive us and we don't heed Paul's warning to see them taking us captive, we believe the biggest lie that kind of umbrellas all of this. And it's that Jesus is not enough. Is that Jesus just simply is not enough. Because that's when we start building human traditions. And I'm, I'm not against, what I'm not talking about here is like, 
like saying liturgies in church, like forms of worship that are based and been passed down through generations of Christians. What I'm talking about are human traditions that put things other than Jesus in charge. But what Paul's here to refresh our soul, so here's the truth that kind of combats that, that umbrella lie. And it's just really simple, okay? So if you came to hear something profound today, you're not going to find it because the reality is that Jesus really is enough. Like he really is enough. And even just letting that sink in for a moment, I think could maybe even start to like confront some of those things maybe you've built in your mind about where Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough, so I have to control everything. Man, Jesus, I don't know if Jesus is enough, and so I'm going to freak out every time I get a bill in the mail. Man, Jesus is not enough, and so I've attached myself, and I only find fulfillment if, if I hear affirmation and praise from this certain person in my life. Because what that leads to is the first enslaver that we're going to talk about that kind of is built on that lie of Jesus is not enough, and it's a surrogate savior. A surrogate savior. In verse 9 it says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In verse 10, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So remember that Paul was writing his letter to dispel some of false teachings that had been circulating in this church. One of them being that we just simply are not enough by having faith in Jesus. Like there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. This Jesus guy like for us, it would sound like, man, this Jesus guy, that, that was 2,000 years ago. He may have been a good teacher. He may have done some good stuff. I, I love his teaching on taking care of the poor and on loving others and stuff. But, but like, did he, like, did he really die on a cross and then raise from the grave? Like, did that re- and, and if that really happened, like, is that enough to, to have a full life or like experience some kind of like paradise in the afterlife? like whether that's heaven or otherwise. Like, is that really enough? Like, surely the gospel can't really be enough that Jesus came and paid the penalties for our sins and that he rose from the grave. Surely that can't be enough. And so we, what we start doing is, is we start inserting different things to where like, yeah, you, like, you can be a Christian if you have blank too. Okay, so, so maybe we find ourselves saying something like, like, I don't know how you can vote blank and be a Christian. Man, you can't be woke and be a Christian. Man, you can't be conservative and be a Christian. You can't be an Arsenal fan and be a Christian. Like, there's just no way, thank you for my like four English Premier League fans in the room, let's go, that was for you. But it starts saying we're, we're like just believing in Jesus can't really be enough. You have to believe in something else to have fullness in life. Like, like there's no way that you can be a Christian and not believe blank. And that's just a hard pill for us to swallow because it's hard to sell war bonds if you don't have an enemy. And we live in a culture that sells fear by creating straw man enemies all the time. And so the lie is that you must believe something else to be enough. 
Man, you've got to be blank if you really want. I don't know how you can follow Jesus and be this. I don't know how you can be a follower of Jesus and do this. And it's just important to remember as we enter into to political debates in a new political cycle, that there's a difference in casting your vote and pledging your allegiance. Because here's the truth. If you say something like that, you can't be, like, I don't know how you could be a Christian and believe blank. I don't know how you could be a Christian and not believe blank. I just want to say, if you're saying things like that, you're exactly right. You can't. Like, you can't on any side of it, because you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus in your own power. It is the grace of God alone that we even get to talk to God or have an experience with the living God, and it's because he loves us that while we all were still sinners and separated from God, enemies of God and children of wrath, as Paul says it, that he proved his love for us by sending his son Jesus to die for us. No matter what we add to our job description, no matter how many titles we have in our email signature, it will never be enough to be a Christian. But let me just say, you also don't need any of that. Like Paul's like, hey, if anybody has any reason to brag, I do. I mean, Paul is like the standard. Like if there was a rabbi who probably could have taught Jesus in the Jewish like, like education system, it would have been Paul. Like, he was the guy. Like, he was the guy that was leading military conquest the way that Phineas did in the Old Testament to keep God happy and living within the covenant with God. Like, Paul was living in that tradition. He was zealous for the law, and he said, you know what? I count all of that as garbage because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And so let me just say, what, like, let me just ask that question. Thinking about legacies that's been handed down to you, what comes to mind when you hear... Maybe you can hear that voice in your head say, say if you, if, like, to really follow Jesus, you need to be blank. You need to believe blank. To add on to the, to the reality of who Jesus is. Because there's no room for surrogate saviors in God's kingdom. There's only room for one throne. And it's for our king. Because here's the truth. Is that Jesus has made you enough. He's made you enough. You don't have to work. Whatever identity you're trying to build, and we live in a world that's all about um, image management, right? Like, like, it's so funny. Anybody seen those videos going around on Instagram or TikTok of the guy who just moved to Asheville? And he's, like, making fun of people who just moved to Asheville, and he's talking about, like, living in his rock climber's garage because he can't afford rent, and he's wearing, like, all Patagonia stuff and a thing. You know, has anybody seen those? It's so funny. It's so accurate. I get sent it all the time, and I'm like, like all my friends who don't live here, and I'm like, shut up. Like, so what? But the reality is, like, image management from, from the way we portray ourselves on social media to the clothes we pick out, we, we're trying to create an identity and get people to believe this identity that we're trying to create about ourselves. Right? Like, like, like we think, oh, if I want to be seen as outdoorsy, i got to wear the outdoorsy clothes. If I want to be seen as successful, right? Like it, it even comes to the, the, the jobs we have, which I'm not saying this isn't true, but anybody ever heard the saying, dress for the job you want? Right? That is image management. Like we're trying to portray ourselves in a way that creates an identity that other people believe are true about us. But the problem is, what happens if you can't live up to that identity? Like what happens if you get the job, but you're bad at it? Or you get the job too soon and you're like a terrible boss and you become the horror story for one of the employees under you. 
that you had yourself when you were in your early 20s? Like what, like what happens whenever like the identity you're trying to create, you can't reach on your own or you do reach it and it's just empty? And you realize, man, this is just as hollow as that human tradition I've been fighting, that legacy that's been passed down from my family that I grew up in. Man, this is just as empty as all of those things. But see, Jesus made us enough. In verse 10, it says, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In verses 13 through 14, it says, you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed those powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. I love in, in Ephesians 1.4, it says that God chose us. He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world. So before you even have felt insecure or you felt shame or we have felt like we're not enough, we've already been known to be in Jesus and he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And verse 5 goes on to say that in his love, God had a plan for us to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Sonship is a legal term that kind of connects with this in, in Colossians 2, uh, 14, where, where it's a legal term, meaning that we get all of the status and treasure that's in the name of Jesus. We get that put into our bank account. Like imagine like... You're home today, later on, your fantasy football team's tanking, you're upset, and you get a call from a lawyer, and you're like, you know, hello? And this says, hey, this is, you know, so-and-so, I represent uh, Mr. Mr. Elon Musk. I just want you to know, he, he's legally adopted you, and he's put all of his assets into your bank account. Feel free to use those whenever you want. Okay. Uh, how many of you feel like that would be a large enough sum of money to be pretty life-altering for you in the trajectory of your future? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. True for me. It may surprise you, but I don't have as much money as Elon Musk, okay? How much of a greater reality is it that Jesus, by what he accomplished for you, has purchased you and given you an identity and has taken everything that he has been given by the Father and put it into your account? Fullness. Wholeness. No more having to work for acceptance. No more having to work for an identity because he looks at you and he says, you are my son and you are my daughter. And one day when you stand before the throne of God, you're not consumed by the wrath for his anger, but you have the mediator Jesus. And so you just get to experience the fullness of love and acceptance and light. So here's the second enslaver. The second enslaver is when we feel like we have to work for acceptance. So the first one is we have to believe something more in order to be enough. But the reality is that faith in Jesus is enough because of what Jesus did, not because of we, what we've done. The second enslaver is working for acceptance, and it's built on the lie that I must do more to be enough. So the first one is I must believe more, and I must kind of create this like truth identity to be seen as enough. The second one is I must do more to be enough. In verses 11 through 15, there's a lot of talk about things that have to be done, right? Like, like, like circumcision of the heart, which is the idea that the old flesh has moved away and we're living into the new covenant and life with Jesus, putting off of the flesh, which is just, that, that word flesh just means the sinful part 
of us humans, that we've been buried in baptism, raised to new life. There's a lot of stuff that needs to get done there. But the beauty is none of that depends on us. Not one time does it say, hey, you better make this happen. It's all talked about in past tense because God has already done it all. I hope that freezes up. Like imagine if you walked in every Sunday, every Sunday morning you walk into church and on the TVs here, instead of the the announcement slides rolling, there's a leaderboard, okay? And depending on like how much you prayed and how well you actually prayed and how much your Bible you read and like, like how many times you gave money to the person at the red light or, or how many times you shared your faith or something, you get Jesus points. All right, I know we joke around and do trivia in here and do Jesus points, but like imagine there being names and like a little picture of your face and like the leaderboard's changing. Like on Monsters, Inc., you know, the scare floor where you get, they get points and it's changing all the time. Like imagine you walk in and you see that. Some of us who are type A and or competitive think, let's try it, <laughs> right, for a minute. For the rest of us... <laughs> whose natural bent is to kind of lean towards feeling shame a little more, seeing that would be soul-crushing. How many Sundays would it take to see that and not see your name on it or not see yourself in first place before you quit showing up? How many times? Me, probably four, right, because it's my job, right? That's enough to put in a notice and say I'm out, right? But I mean, like, I think that's how we kind of think about it sometimes in like, man, I don't know if I can pray. Like, God probably doesn't even want to hear from me. Like, I can't even remember the last time I took time to pray. So like, I don't know. I think, I think he would just be too disappointed. You know? Like, man, I, like, the Bible is kind of hard to, to talk. And every time I read, I just feel guilty. And I read stories, and especially if I start in Genesis, I read stories that, like, I just don't understand and now I feel guilty because I, like, the Bible's supposed to be this thing that I just get because I'm a Christian, but I don't get it, so it's hard, so like, I'm just not going to go for it, right? So, so we think that like, what we do determines on how we're accepted by God. I love the story in John 6, John chapter 6. We're, we're probably familiar with, with the story where Jesus, uh, anybody heard the story where Jesus uh, shows up, like a thousands of people show up to hear him. They haven't had anything to eat, and so he takes some loaves and fishes, spreads it out, and feeds all those people so much that there's like a bunch of food left over. So we're all pretty familiar with that story. And, I, and then right after that story, the disciples get in a boat, and they're going across the lake to go into another town where they're going to keep doing the, the ministry of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, hey, y'all go without me. I'm going to go pray. He ends his prayer meeting. They've already left. So then he walks across the water, gets on the boat with them, and then it says they just miraculously showed up on the shore. Okay, so, so the disciples in 12 hours have witnessed two huge, like, crazy miracles that, like, actually happened. They got to witness them with their own eyes. And then... They're like asking Jesus how that happened. And, and, and what he tells them is, because they're, they're basically like, okay, Jesus, so like, what do we have to do to have whatever you've got? Like, like what's the work that we need to do? That's what they, they literally ask him. They say, hey, what's the work of the Father that we need to be doing? And he tells them, he's like, hey, hey, like, I, I'm the bread of life. I am eternal life. And their first question is, is, well, how do we do that? They say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And he kind of leads them into it because he says, hey, you should work for this kind of bread. You should work for this kind of life. They're like, what do we have to do? What do I have to do? And here, here's his answer. He just says, just believe in me. That's what he says. 
Isn't that crazy? Like the work that we have to do has already been accomplished by God. The work that we have to do to feel accepted has already been accomplished by Jesus. And then they keep, they're like, well, well, give us a sign so that we can believe, right? Like Moses gave our ancestors food in the wilderness. So like, what can you do? And Jesus reminds me, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the bread that comes from heaven. And also, God gave them that bread. It wasn't Moses. That's what he goes on. Like the disciples who saw Jesus do crazy stuff, they learned from him. They saw his way of life, his compassion, his holiness. They wanted to know what they could do to be accepted. And Jesus just says, hey, I've, I'm, the bread of, I'm the bread of eternal life. And you just believe in me. Because the truth is that Jesus has done enough. Jesus has already done enough. When we start to think that Jesus hasn't done enough for us to be accepted and we think we have to build something, we have to do enough stuff to, to be accepted, it's like building a house and trying to sell it. So, so you're going to look for a house, you're very excited, you've seen the pictures on Zillow, the inside picture is kind of dark and blurry and you're like, maybe it looks better in real life. But you show up and the outside is like gorgeous, right? The outside is like beautiful, like, picture, if you close your eyes and picture your dream house, you're standing in the front yard looking at it. That's what it looks like. And you're getting excited. It's in your price range. Everything you've done to work for this moment of buying your first house is coming true. And then you go in and you open the door, and it's not even finished. It's not completed. And what you can see of it is, like, termite-ridden. There's, like, bugs everywhere. Like, insert your worst fear, living inside the inside of that beautiful outside house. And that's what it's like when we buy into the idea that, that we have to do more, we have to do something to be accepted. It's like building a house without any foundation. See, what Jesus did, those verses 13 through 15, whatever he did in all that, it was enough for us. And whatever false promises come, that sin offers can't fit the bill. They can't do it. A life of ease, of comfort, of fame, of fortune, of acceptance, of, of enough. It, it's not because Jesus has done everything to do it. So all of those lies, all of those, those elemental spiritual forces, I love the way it says that, that he, he took it away, our indebtedness, and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed them, making a spectacle of them. Some translations say by hanging them on the cross, the one who was made a public spectacle in Rome turned and made a spectacle of the powers of darkness. The one who was mocked has made a mockery of sin. The one who had a joke, king of the Jews, nailed to the cross above his head has nailed our sin to the cross. And because of that truth, we are set free. So we have to remember our, our freedom doesn't come from anything that we've done or do. That doesn't mean that it's not important to pray and structure your life around the reality and presence of God. But the truth is that we have been set free. And so we remember that. And so, so let me ask, just kind of as we end this, let me ask with a question. Like, can you believe this? Like, can you believe this? What part of your faith is more abstract than real. And it's hard to believe that these things are true. Like, is it hard to believe that you've been forgiven of sin? Like, is it hard to not feel shame for things you've done in the past? Is it hard to believe that addiction doesn't have to be a part of your story? 
Is it hard to believe that you don't have to earn something or perform a certain way, but that you're perfectly loved just because God made you? And so for the action step for this week, here's what I'm going to challenge us to do as a church. It's not a hard challenge, but I'm going to ask you to do it with me. I'm going to ask you, everyone in this room, for at least five minutes every day, like if you need to literally set a timer and do it, set a timer. And you're like, Matt, this sounds like earning something. It's not, okay? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. Because we're physical human beings that live in our body and we have to have our faith embodied into who we are. I'm going to ask you for five minutes every day to pray out loud to God. Like talk out loud to God. Scott McKnight said that the proof of one's theologies is in their prayer. If we believe that Jesus really, truly, actually lived, existed, died for our sins on the cross, and then literally physically rose from the grave, then let's talk out loud to him this week. And, and if there was a part of the sermon today, if there's a lie that you've caught yourself believing, maybe for five minutes that prayer is just talking to Jesus out loud about that lie and asking him, to combat it with that truth. So that's what we're going to do this week. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to close in worship. And as we close, here's what I want to do. I'm gonna, we're going to take just a moment of silence. A moment of silence, and I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit that if there was, that if there was a lie that came to your mind, and, and maybe you felt your body, like maybe you felt your shoulders get tight, you felt your blood pressure raise a little bit. Maybe your palms started sweating and you got a little shaky because there was a lie there. There was a legacy that's affecting the way you're following Jesus that's been handed down to you. I'm just going to take us a minute and in silence ask the Holy Spirit to give us peace and to let the grace of God pour over you. Paul wrote in Romans 5, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we know that that's true because he pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So before we, so before we, we, we respond and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and mend us into the, the image of Jesus, let's just take a, a moment of silence to hear what he's bringing to our minds and hearts and how he's working. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we know that because of what Paul wrote to us in Romans 8, that, that the same spirit that raised you from the dead is living in us who have placed our faith in you. And so Holy Spirit, as we, as we close out worshiping, inviting you to come, inviting you to speak to us and guide us. And as this week, as, as whoever accepts the challenge to pray out loud for at least five minutes every day, Holy Spirit, make the things, the, the part of our faith, the truth in Jesus that's more abstract than real, 
Meet us in those spaces and make it real. Make it undeniable. Give us an experience with you, the living God, that gives us such a taste of grace and of your glory that we lose an appetite for the things of this world. Holy Spirit, come. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.